After that, let's take our Bibles, 1 Timothy, and put a finger and an eye on chapter 3. We're going to dive into the second week of our series, The Matter of Church. We want to make sure that you have your word there in front of you. Our Carlisle campus, your Bibles are open. It's the word that does the work, regardless of our location. So let's dig right in to week number two. Growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, my pastor's name was Dr. Lee Robertson. He's with the Lord now, but he was uh, the found, not the founder of the church, but he was there in 1946 and uh, stayed 40-something years, I believe it was, uh, maybe 40 exactly. But the whole time I was in that church and growing up, I would hear him say this a lot. <clears throat> I don't think he was the inventor of it, but I think he got credited with it. He would say this a lot. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Now you can debate parts of that. There's always multiple factors in every scenario and situation. But I think generally <clears throat> you would say that is a true statement, that leadership plays a big part when things work. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so when it comes to leadership in the church, we would all agree it matters greatly. So much so that God has given us a beautiful system, His system of leadership for the church. And there are two offices, elder and deacon. And this morning what I want to do is unpack a bit more about these two offices of the church that should be in every church, that's why I think this is a big C matter. You'll talk more in your small group about how it looks in the little C church here called First Family Church. But I want us to look at the issue and the topic of elders and deacons from 1 Timothy 3. Now, I'll kind of unpack them for you. I'll take questions live, of course, as we kind of conclude a, a learning section of our message today. So if you have some, the numbers in your bulletin. Keep it handy. Text them in. We'll try to take two or three questions. My goal today is not only that you'll see um, that this is a, a uh, matter of great importance, but that you'll see also this main truth coming through about elders and deacons. And here's kind of the take-home truth up front. That when it comes to elders and deacons, the matter at stake is spiritual protection and tactical direction. In fact, will you say that with me before we read the Scriptures? Say it together. When it comes to elders and deacons, the matter at stake is spiritual protection and tactical direction. Let me see if you can see this surface from multiple texts. We'll begin at 1 Timothy 3. I plan today to just kind of look at the um, standard for elders, and then I'm going to show you an example of it. And then we'll see the standard for deacons, and I'll show you an example of that, and we'll see this truth surface. So 1 Timothy 3. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, or the word there could be pastor or bishop, elder, he desires a noble work. Notice that there is an aspiration and a desire, so something internal is happening. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. Underline the word be, would you? 
The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable. You could attach and insert the word be in front of every one of those. That's really the point of this word be in verse 2. You could say he must be above reproach, be the husband of one wife, be self-controlled. You kind of follow that? He's describing things that are, things that should be um, visible, present, the reality of this man's life. He must be able to teach, verse 3, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. In some ways, he kind of says, here's what he should be, here's what he should not be. Pick it up in verse 4. He must manage his own household competently with all, um, excuse me, he must manage his household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. He begins a parenthetical um, comment, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? A rhetorical question of sorts, wouldn't you agree? And it's based on this verse and this couple of verses that we say at First Family that when we're looking to see about elders, we're going to look at their first floor of observation. How is their family? And if it's just kind of a mess, if it's awry and there's not good management, we're going to wonder, like, well, we really wouldn't want that in the church. We don't want a chaotic mess with the family of God. And so it's just really a, a very plain and almost blatant uh, comment that when you look for elders, you want to say, hey, how are things in their physical family? If it's pretty good there, the, the sign may be that they'll be pretty good in the spiritual family. So just keep that in mind. It's a really interesting parenthetical comment the Apostle Paul here makes. It goes to verse 6, he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. And maybe you're wondering, what is that condemnation? What could happen to a man who potentially wants to be an elder or is an elder, but he's one too soon because he's a new convert? It must be that he falls or the result of pride is a fall. Proverbs says this, this is what happened to the devil. He was conceited, wanted the place of God, and then he fell. So perhaps he's saying here, New convert begins to be proud, thinking, I'm ready for this role of leadership, this weight of leadership, and he begins to be proud, and suddenly he falls. Sin traps him and cripples him. Verse 7, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into the disgrace and the devil's trap. I think there he's speaking of uh, the sense of hypocrisy, wanting to use the Lord's work for personal selfish gain. You see a picture of this in Acts 13. You see some very similar wording there in Acts 13 when someone tried to kind of pretend to be one of God's workers, but he knew that in the end it would gain him something, uh, kind of a, using the Lord's work as an angle. So I think he's speaking of that here. You can't, you know, be working an angle. You must instead have a good reputation among the outsiders. They, they know the truth, like you're really being genuine and authentic in truth, that you're doing this for the Lord's glory, not your own. So there's some interesting verses there, a set of seven verses about the biblical standard for elders. And we could say a lot about those. We could spend multiple weeks just looking at these character traits and these um, abilities, which there's really just primarily one. But because we're doing a lot in one week, let me just simply give you a couple of high-level nuggets. The essential key takeaway from these seven verses is this, and everyone needs to hear this loud and clear. Eldership is, first of all, something you are. 
that then results in something you do. Eldership in the church, leading as an elder in the church is something you first are. And then it's something that you do. This is why I think the word be is so important. You see it there in verse 2, and you see the, the implicit understanding that it's before all of these character traits. He must be this. He must not be this. He must be this. And so there's a sense in which we're looking at men and asking, are they the right kind of man in their home? Are they the right kind of man in their heart? And then would they be the right kind of man in our church? And so there's this process, this kind of testing, this kind of evaluating that occurs in the life of a man who wants to be an elder. It is something that they are that then results in something they do. Now, let me just simply say this about the word be. I found this very comforting and very very helpful to me over the years. Sometimes you read this and you say, well, I haven't always been self-controlled. I haven't always been sensible. I haven't always had a good reputation with those on the outside. You make it pick one of these and say, man, I didn't do well 10 years ago. I, I, I made a really bad mistake 15 years ago. We could all probably have a, we all probably got a list that we hope no one ever finds out about. Could somebody say amen? You need to say amen there because you got one. I got one. We probably all got things in our past we hope stay there in the past, don't we? But this word be, listen very carefully, this comforting word from the Lord, it's a present infinitive. Now, that's a little geeky technical language, but I hope it has practical shoe leather comfort for you. Here's what Paul is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what the man must be in the moment. Now, aren't you thankful for the grace of God and second chances? That maybe someone says, yeah, 10 years ago, man, I didn't have a good reputation, but man, I was convicted. I worked with some brothers. They got me on the right track. And man, I've had, I've had 10 years of really just a whole new testimony in our community. Like, if that is the current condition, if that's the B in that man's life, then that's what Paul is saying. It's a present infinitive. This is what the man must be at this time. He's not saying that there are are situations where, hey, you did this 15 years ago, you're out forever. Now, there may be those situations where perhaps the traction isn't, we haven't gained the traction to overcome a certain thing, and so we have to talk about that. But aren't you thankful that we're not forever sidelined by a past mistake or sin? Hallelujah, church. Or the truth is, we'd have no elders ever. But the Bible's clear. Elders must be in the moment, in the present, these things. That's very comforting to my heart. And so it's something that we are that results in something we do. I'll just bring one more note of evidence to this high-level nugget. I think this is seen in the two words, aspire and desire. Do you see this in verse 1? So this isn't the only thing we look at, but what motivates and prompts a man, to be certain things, to make adjustments, to change, to seek um, um, these things listed in, this, in these verses. What, what really begins to drive this man? It's an inner compulsion from the Lord, an aspiration, a desire. So do you see what's happening? Something is internal before it's external. 
Something is happening to him in the way he is before he ever begins to do anything. Let me show you an example of this. It's in Acts 20. Flip over there, would you? Acts 20. Here we're going to see an example of elders. Paul here is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, which, by the way, is the church where Timothy pastored. So we're reading in 1 Timothy 3 about elders. It very well could be that it's these elders he's talking to in Acts 20. He was in Ephesus for probably about two to three years. He's saying goodbye. It's a very emotional moment. He talks to them beginning around verse 17 forward. But I'll just pick it up about verse 26. And Paul here is just a man on a mission. I love this part of Acts 20. Look what he says in verse 26. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Speaking there of the elders, that church. He says, I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. So be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. See the word overseers? Same as in 1 Timothy 3. And Paul is saying, you men who are overseers, the Holy Spirit's called you to this. That's an internal desire and aspiration. He says you should be on guard. There's the idea of protection. And here's why we should be on guard and protect the church, because we are to shepherd it. It's God's church. He purchased it with his own blood, verse 28 says. Wow. We are not the owners of the church. We're just the stewards of it. We, that's why we say often we're under shepherds. We don't operate out of our own authority. We have a, a, a given authority from the Lord. It's His authority that we're extending. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30 is just stark in its wording. Men will rise up even from your own number. Now, did he mean from that group of men gathered around him or just from men who would one day be elders? I don't know. But he's saying, you'd better be on guard because there'll be men that you think are trustworthy and are elders, and they'll be the ones who could lead you astray. This is stark. He says, they'll arise from your own number and they'll distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. There's those, this language of protection and guarding again. Remembering that night and day for three years, I'd never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Now, notice in this goodbye how often Paul refers to the word of God. Do you see it? He says he warned them day and night. This is what he proclaimed to them, the whole plan of God. He says they're to teach the word of God. It's what he taught to them. Men will try to distort the word of God, so be on guard. And so at the end he says, I commit you to God and his word. So when you think about elders, you realize that the, the word of God is a central part uh, to what their role is, which is why back in 1 Timothy 3, you really have a lot of character qualities and one skill. It's the ability to teach. And we mean by that the ability to teach the Bible, the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? There's a whole list of character qualities. There's just one skill he has to have. The ability to teach. And why is that? Because in the examples of elders, the Word of God is central to their shepherding. 
How do we guard and protect the flock? Through the word. We don't have our own authority. We have the authority of the word. So we bring that to bear upon our people. And we guard them and fence them in and shepherd them and protect them through the word. That's why an elder must be able to teach. It's probably the only actual skill mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. It flows, I think, out of this aspiration, this desire that he knows us from the Spirit, and so he lives his life in a certain way so that he is, can I use this word, um, trusted. Even we'd say qualified to then teach the Bible to those who are looking to him, listening to him, and following him. Man, what a privilege. And what, a, what a weighty role this idea of being an elder is. Well, let's move, if we can, to the office of deacon. Again, I want to kind of tackle these somewhat quickly and then take a few questions about these two offices. Let me read for you verses 8 through 13 here, and let's talk a bit about deacons. The Bible says this. Here's the biblical standard for deacons. Deacons likewise. So what you see there is that there is a lot of similarity between deacons and elders. They're both godly men. They're both aiming towards uh, helping the flock. So there's, there is some difference, but there's not a lot. Deacons likewise should be, underline that word again, you're going to find the same thing true. They should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Can I pause there and say this? I don't know where this emerge, but somehow in the American church, deacons, and I think this is tragic, they became known as the people who could do the work, but they didn't really know much about the Bible. And the Bible actually says the opposite, that they should hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Like they, they really understand their theology. They know what God says. They may not be required to have to teach it. That's an elder's role. You don't find the phrase able to teach in the deacon's description or the standard for it. But you don't find them saying, well, if I don't have to teach it, I don't have to know it. No, they actually know it really well. They hold it close and deep, and they believe it with a clear conscience. They're not afraid of it or ashamed of it. And I, I love the fact that our deacons here, though often they're quiet, and they're background men, and they get 99% of the logistical work done. I tell you, if you want to be discipled, ask a deacon. They'll disciple you in what you should believe because they're holding the faith with a clear conscience. All of our elders and deacons are theological men. The elders are responsible to teach it. The deacons not. That's all. But it doesn't mean that there's one group that's like, well, I don't get the Bible. I just, you know, build the buildings. That's crazy. Both are to be theologically sound men. Verse 10, they must also be tested first. That's a very interesting word, isn't it? It's kind of the idea of not a new convert for elders. You just don't put someone in this role of leadership, of exemplary um, you know, influence who hasn't proven some things. So they're to be tested. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Would you circle the word serve? I'll come back to it in a minute. Circle the word serve. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. 
Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. Again, you see a lot of similarities. That's the word likewise back in verse 8. And then verse 13, for those who have served well, draw a line, circle that, would you? Connect it to the previous word serve. For those who have served well as deacons, they acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When I read that verse, I realize some of the most courageous, bold men in our church, there are deacons. Now, when you look at the word serve here, mentioned twice, it does serve, no pun intended, as a summary word for deacons. Do you notice how this is played out in the text? After listing what they should be and how they should be tested or proven or evaluated, he says, then they can serve. It's this summary word. He does the same thing in verse 13. Simply says, if you've served well. Now, here's what's unique about the, the language here. The word deacon and the word serve are the same word. He could have said here, those that have been tested and proven blameless, then they can deacon as deacons. It doesn't sound great in the English. But, but really, it's the same word. And so when we call someone a deacon, what we're technically saying is they're a, a servant. When we say someone's a pastor, we are simply saying they're an overseer. So there's synonymous words. There's interchangeable terms for these offices. So this is what it means. This is the biblical standard for a deacon, servants of the church. Now, again, I just simply want to say to you this. If you were to ask me, Todd, what's the high-level nugget you would draw from these verses? It's really the same thing as what I did for elders, that deaconship is something you are that then results in something you do. I would base it again, this is somewhat repetitive, on the present infinitive be. And so for both of these offices, Paul is saying, church, make sure the men are something before they do something. Otherwise, you'll have pitfalls and potholes. But men that are something and then do something, men that are the right thing, then do the right thing as elders and deacons. That's a good situation for a church. Now, seeing this emphasized twice, both with elders and deacons, it reminds me that, and I want you to hear this again loud and clear, church leadership is always an issue of godly character first. It may not be perfect character. Again, if that were the case, we'd have no elders or deacons, all right? But it is an issue, first, of godly character. I tell you that because you live in an age when competency and chemistry and celebritism matters way more in the eyes of the culture. Our media and the tools at their disposal can make anyone look and sound good. And we live in a soundbite culture where you'll hear something for one minute and you'll think, man, that's awesome. And you may not have really heard them for more than a whole message and you haven't been in their church, you haven't heard them for a long series and you really don't know what they believe. You don't know how they interact, but you saw 60 seconds of some clip with music and lighting and effects. You think, man, I love that dude. And you don't know squat about him. Can we be honest? And we are so quickly drawn in to people based on celebrityism, um, competency, or even chemistry. But the Bible says what matters first is character. 
This is why when people ask me, what should I look for in a church? And this, I'm going to say this very humbly. I'm just going to say this to you without any names involved because we're all, on a, we're all working in our sanctification. We're all being refined by the Lord. We'd all agree with that. But in the most practical way, when someone says to me, I'm looking for a church, I always say to them this, you find a church, first of all, where the leadership has character. And you can't do that in one visit. Go, sit, listen, ask questions, watch how they respond to problems, what kind of pronouns they use in regards to I or we. Just listen and soak in and ask yourself, is the character of this leadership of First Timothy 3? Don't be glamorized by lights and celebrityism and chemistry and competency. Ask yourself and, and lean in long enough. And when you find that place where you can trust your leadership, where the character is proven to be a, among men, like a, a, a plurality of men with solid character, not perfect, but you can trust that their, their aim is the good of the church and the glory of God. Settle in, take a seat and stay there. Raise your kids in that kind of church. Don't chase the wind, the coolest thing, the hottest item. If you're looking for the greatest celebrity, you'll change every three or four years. There's always a new fad. There's always a better voice. There's always a, a, a better looking person, a hipper dude. Are you with me? So that's, I'm, just, I'm just speaking to you very plainly here. Character in leadership is the issue. And if you don't believe me, just start tracking the number of times you see people you thought were a-okay, just they're not in ministry anymore. They're not pastoring. They're not preaching. What happened? They got worried about competency, chemistry, and celebrityism. They got worried more about the culture than the character Christ calls for. Let me give you a biblical example of deacons, can I? It's, again, in the book of Acts. Just find chapter 6 briefly. Let me just read you these quick verses. And notice how in this example of deacons, you're going to find some of the same trends that we've seen in Acts 20 and 1 Timothy 3. The story goes like this. This is in the beginning of the church at Jerusalem. Not long after Pentecost, so the church is just infant. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, and that phrase, if you were to track it historically, is probably meaning when they were increasing into the thousands in number. There were probably thousands of folks belonging to this brand new infant church. Hard to track those people, no doubt. They were just, it just, it, it must have been fun to be on that ride. Well, there arose a complaint. Imagine that. I can't even think that would even happen, right? There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews. Those were Jews, excuse me, those were, you call them Greek-speaking Jews, or they were, um, those were the Greek flavor. They understood the current culture, but they had this Jewish uh, background as well. And then there's the Hebrew Jews. You make it say, I'll use this word correctly, you make it say they would be the, the uh, legitimate ones, like the hardcore ones. You know, like, we're the real Jews. We're Hebrew Jews. We're not these Greek-speaking Jews. You can kind of sense the conflict now, right? Well, these widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so I, I suspect the complaint may have been rooted in like, well, you, you love them more. You favor them. Why'd they get the first bit of food? We were on the list and we got left out. You can just kind of hear this. 
You're thinking it's 2023, don't you? No, this is like A.D., uh, what, 30-something probably, maybe 40? Well, the 12, speaking of the apostles, which I think served as the elders of the first church and maybe some other churches in the area, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and they said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. What was the primary job of these elders, these apostles in this church? The scriptures, teaching the word. And so brothers and sisters, verse 3 says, Select from among you seven men of good reputation, that fits 1 Timothy 3, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we can appoint them to this duty. And we'll have them serve our widows. They'll handle this logistical issue. They will make sure we have proper tactical direction to handle this problem. We, though, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, which, by the way, does not mean they went to some ivory tower and said, don't bother me, I'm praying and reading the Bible. They weren't trying not to be with people. This is really just a, a reference to discipleship. It's like, hey, can you guys handle the widows and the tables? We've got a thousand people to try to get grounded in the faith. They weren't away from people. They were in the thick of people. And they needed help with logistics, tactical issues, so they could stay with people. Well, this pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, and then Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Now watch this. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Here's the commissioning of the first set of deacons. Now, what's the result? This is what I love. The word of God spread. So, so, church, hear this well. The real end game was not to necessarily make sure the widows got their food. The real end game was to make sure the widows got their food so the word of God could keep spreading. Now, that's a church with its priority straight. Amen? Like, we, we don't want to miss our widows, but we can't become all about a few food distribution center. That's not what we do. We're a gospel proclamation center. That's what we do. So let's take care of our widows. Hey, guys, can you serve that way so we can keep proclaiming the gospel? And the word of God kept spreading, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. What a beautiful story about the impact of deacons. Amen. Who handle tactical, logistical issues so that spiritual protection and reproduction can keep occurring. So there you have it. The biblical standard for elders and deacons and a biblical example of both. This is why leadership in the church matters. And when it comes to elders and deacons, again, here's the matter at stake. Say these four words with me. Spiritual protection tactical direction. I hope that as we saw these four sets of texts, you saw those themes emerge and surface. Oh, this is God's design. That elders are something, and then in what they do, they spiritually guard, protect, and oversee the church and teach the Bible to the church. And then to make sure that doesn't stop or cease, we have men who serve, and, and they handle logistic and tactical issues, and together they work to make sure that the Word of God continues to go forth. Yes, it is about spiritual protection and tactical direction. That's the job, in a nutshell, I believe, of elders and deacons from these four texts. So let me take a few questions, if I can. You may have texted some in. 
I know one came in through our Facebook page earlier, so we'll start with it. I promise the man, you'll go to the front of the line. So we'll take his question first, and if you have some, we'll see if there are any more. We have six questions. We'll see if we can get to three of them. How's that sound? Uh, is there a biblical restriction on female deacons, or has this been the result of many denominations using the title deacon when they really mean elder? So let me just take the question at the beginning. Is there a biblical restriction on female deacons? I would say there's not. Um, as a uh, point of, um, I guess I would use the word doctrine, it's probably second and third level doctrine. But we could disagree on this, but I would say there's not a biblical restriction. I personally don't think, Romans 16, when it says that Phoebe was a servant of the church, the word deacon, I don't think it's describing an office for Phoebe. I think it's describing a character trait of Phoebe. So I personally would say I'm 60-40 that women as deacons in a church is probably not the biblical expectation. But I don't think I would ever fight over that. In fact, someone asked me one time, could you be in a church with women deacons? I said, I sure could. No problem with me. I just don't know if I would lead that way. Some of our church plants have women deacons, by the way. It's their call. There are good people who see the Bible as teaching there are women deacons. I don't quite see it that way. So we can disagree and what? Have a diet coat together, right? Say amen, church. It's a good question. I don't think that's really the... That's his question. He asked, you know, if that's the reason that maybe things have happened in denominations regarding elder and deacon titles. I'll leave that alone for now. Maybe that's a good extra point podcast. Uh, but to answer the question succinctly, I don't think there is a biblical restriction. There are biblical preferences regarding that issue. How's that sound? Does that work? Good. My preference is I think the Bible leans towards showing that women don't serve as deacons in the New Testament, but there are those who say it does, and we can all be good friends and disagree on that. Awesome. Love it when you smile at me like that. Let's see if we go to question two. If B is present and current, how do you handle husband of one wife if that happened 10 years ago rather than who they are now? I don't know for sure what they're asking. Um, he must be, so the husband and wife is a phrase that is making sure that no polygamy exists. Okay, now you may not have expected that answer, but in the cultural, textual, clearest sense of the word, Paul is saying you can't have more than one wife. The phrase is a one-woman man. Now, I'm going to get in the weeds here a bit with you. Our church holds that there are two allowances for divorce. You don't have to use them. They're allowances, meaning you wouldn't be sinning if you divorced your spouse for these two allowances. But you don't have to. You can stay married by the Holy Spirit's power and seek reconciliation at all times. Amen, church? Our elders have labored and prayed over this, and we, we don't want to promote an environment where, hey, look for your first out and take it. It's not what we're after. We, but we want to be honest. There seems to be two allowances for divorce. If that were the case, then the man, let's say, in this situation would not be sinning. Now, there may be a number of years he'll need to wait to try to spend time with his family and help his kids through that and manage, you know, testimonies, uh, issues. Those are all things that are on the table to discuss. But as far as are you disqualified because you've been divorced? No. 
I think there's a lot to be discussed about that. First of all, was it a biblically allowed divorce? And then we can keep going from questions beyond that. But I'm not sure if that's the, the point of the question, but the word be does coincide well with the phrase husband of one wife. He's saying, at the current time, are you married to one woman? And if the answer is yes, that's great. Let's keep digging and talking about how that marriage is doing. How is your home? If you've been married before, let's talk about why that one ended. How long has it been since it ended? And what's your reputation among outsiders? How are you doing with your... Does that make sense? So just be aware. Uh, I personally, I don't think our church holds to you that if you've ever been divorced, you can never be a pastor. We don't hold to that, okay? We would take the, this to mean a husband and one wife in the current, and then we want to talk about why uh, there was a divorce in your past. So let's talk about that issue and, and just have an honest conversation for the good of the church and the glory of God. I hope I answered the question. If I didn't, see me afterwards. Great. Question three. Can someone with a rebellious son or daughter serve as an elder or deacon? Man, that's a great question. So let's be frank here. Uh, the scriptures call the person to manage their home well, right? And there's nobody with perfect kids and there's no kid with perfect parents. Whew, we got that on the table. Praise God. <laughs> We've all had our moments. It's for some moments last years. If I had to answer the question being pressed into a corner, I would answer with this question. Why would you want to? So I've sat across some close friends. I mean, they're very small in number as far as this situation, but I have spent some time with one or two, three men who were considering this, but their child or children were really struggling. And I would say to them, it would probably be better for you to give this extra time to your family and not to the church. Like, it seems to me your kids need you more than the church needs you right now. So technically, could they say, I'm managing it well, I'm doing everything I should be doing. It's their decisions. They're the ones with the rebellious spirit. I guess technically, you could probably find a way there. But I would say, why suck four more hours a week from your kids if you can give it to them on the stage when apparently they're not thriving like they, maybe you want them to. Is that, is that helpful? Does that make sense? There is a large amount of disagreement on this topic, okay, about how rebellious can a kid be and their dad still be an elder or deacon. That's a, there's a ton of variance on that. If you don't know what I think personally, you can ask Julie. We've had long discussions about this with our kids when they were very small about what we would do in certain situations. And we agreed before we ever even got near puberty with our firstborn, this is what we would do in these situations because you won't have the fortitude in the middle of the emotion to make the decision. You'll be blinded, you'll be weakened. And so we just had long talks early about if X were to happen, and I was a pastor, we would do this. If Y were to happen, I would do this. So we'll tell you our opinion privately, if you like, but answer the question. You could probably find a technical way to be an elder with a rebellious kid. I would just ask you, why would you want to? Hope that's helpful and pastoral to you. Let's take one more. I've got about a minute before I've got to be done, so we'll take one more question. I'll take the other questions on the podcast, so will be listening Tuesday, okay? 
Um, the fourth question, can single men not serve as elders or deacons simply due to their lack of experience leading a physical family? No, they can. I don't think this is a prescriptive condition. Now, you may say to me, well, Todd, the other ones seem to be. That's a valid point. There are groups of churches who hold that you can't be an elder unless you're married with children who are obedient. And so there's that group. I see this as a descriptive phrase for men who are married, that you can have one wife and you must have this kind of home. But if you're not married, you still have to be gentle, not greedy. Does that make sense? Some disagree on that. You're asking me what I think and where our church is. We think single men can serve as elders. Would they be, and hear this well, and I'm just really going to create a lot of enemies today probably, I don't know, but hear this well. Would they be at a disadvantage understanding family dynamics? They would be. But that's not a sin. Amen? We just have to work with them and say, hey, understand, and, we, and that can happen. But no, I don't think single men at all are disqualified from being elders or deacons. I'm going to take the other two on the podcast, okay? Uh, I always love moments we can have questions live, and you guys are so humble and kind to me. Thanks for not trying to corner me or trap me. You could do that pretty easily, I know. Um, let me just close with one last word about this issue, because here's where I struggled this week. Um, I love this topic. I, um, not that I'm an expert in it, but I am uh, rabidly committed to plurality, okay? To eldership, 100%. I'm learning more about it every month with our elders. They are as well. We're, we're walking this together, but I am 100%. So much so that Julie and I have said to each other for years, we will not attend or serve a church when we're done here that doesn't have elders. I mean, it's just, it's core, it's essential to what we think church health is all about. So I was struggling this week, like, how does this relate to the, to the person in the chair? Like, hey, Tom, I'm going to work tomorrow. Like, I've got to deal with things that don't really have anything to do with elders or deacons. Like, I'm laying brick, or I'm exchanging money, or I'm doing surgery, or I'm raising kids, like, hey, I'm glad to know this, but like, talk to me, like, what, tomorrow when I land in my job or with my kids, I wake up and it's 5.30, they're wanting breakfast and I'm barely awake, like, what then? Here's what I sense the Holy Spirit really massaged my heart with, that church leadership really is a gospel issue, and here's why, because Jesus died for his church. He's the shepherd, the chief shepherd of the church. And he loved the church so much that he gave the church what I call under shepherds and under servers. That doesn't mean deacons are serving under, like they're not quite meeting the standard. Don't hear that, okay? But just as we're under shepherds who are elders, deacons are under servers. We're under the authority of Christ to help the church he purchased. And and in a, in a very practical way, why are these men here? Listen very carefully. To make sure that you don't lose your life or waste it. That's the clearest way I can say it to you this morning. Like, why do folks gather in this room, in their small groups? Why do they give ear to something I write or our elders write or to a message at a fireside chat? Because there, there are right now five men 
elders, and I think RJ, five deacons, is that right? Who've agreed that we don't want you to lose your life and we don't want you to waste it. So we're gonna lean in with God's word and making sure tactically you can invest with your energy and finances to make the most of your God-given life. Are you, are you hearing me? I mean, when I just begin to sense that from God's spirit, it's like, yeah, that, that matters to a mom waking up tomorrow morning, to a dad going to work, to a mom going to work, to a dad having to deal with a, a kid. I mean, all the things you think of. If you know, I've got some men who at our church are pulling for me to make sure I don't lose my life or waste it. Man, that's a helpful thought. And I just want to say to you, if you're in a chair in this room this morning, there are at least 10 men, five elders and five deacons. We're not perfect and we're not experts, but we love you. And we are pulling and fighting for you and teaching you the Bible and creating environments that tactically, logistically work so that you don't lose your life or waste it. And if you think that's not happening, just open your eyes to your neighborhood. Look at your culture, look at your city. Hundreds of couples waste their life and hundreds don't even have spiritual life. And so we're gonna proclaim the gospel Lean into you with what really matters, the priorities that God has. And we're going to ask you, invest in them. Align your life to them. Don't lose your life and don't waste it. Ten men are aiming for that with you. And I trust that will be an encouragement and, and, a, and like a, a bullpen for you, a dugout of teammates. Do you know there are people in your corner so this morning, as I close in prayer, I want to ask in this service, could I have our elders and deacons stand? Some are serving in the other areas. Some are not at this service. They'll be the next one. But if you're an elder or deacon, would you stand? And I just want to pray for them. And I'm going to ask you to pray for them right now as well. Would you? If I take about 10 seconds, look around, make sure you see them. We introduced them twice a year. That's not the point of this morning. My point this morning is to have them stand. I want to pray for them. We'll do this at 10.30. And will you pray for them as well? Before you complain, gripe, or even suggest in a way that's got a, you know, a hook on it. And we want feedback. Just remember, bigger than all that is there are 10 men who don't want you to lose your life and they don't want you to waste it, okay?